0: As Europe continues to prioritize energy security, nuclear energy is coming to the fore as a potential answer to the supply question. Nuclear energy is highly contested. It's often politically charged and has a lot of negative press. However, there is nothing like a crisis to put things into perspective and highlight the potential contribution nuclear has to offer. To discuss these perspectives with a specific focus on Germany, I'm joined by Kirsty Gogan, co-founder of Terra Praxis, and Rudy Kunig, freelance expert in the energy market. I am Pamela Larg, and you are listening to the Energy Transitions podcast. Rudy, Kirsty, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you talking about such an interesting topic, such as nuclear power in Europe. So I think we should just get started and let's dive into nuclear power as a controversial topic. It has been controversial in the past, perhaps less so now, as Europe deals with its energy security issues. Kirsty, would you like to start with commenting on this?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Nuclear has indeed been controversial in the, you know, traditional sort of green movement that really grew up out of the peace movement that began by campaigning against Nuclear weapons and war. And then that was sort of conflated into an opposition to nuclear energy, which, you know, was the sort of the, that sort of peace movement was the founding principles really in our big traditional environmental organizations like Greenpeace, for example, Friends of the Earth. So you can sort of understand the historical context. But I think in light of climate change, there's certainly been, you know, a, a sort of growing movement of environmentalists across Europe and around the world who are looking again at nuclear energy. And that's been happening now for you know, more than a decade as climate has been sort of rising up the agenda. Now, much more recently, just even you know last summer, in the sort of energy crisis that began unfolding after the pandemic, we saw you know, public and political positions, perceptions really begin to change. And by the time we got to the COP26 in Glasgow, we found a lot more interest and appetite for nuclear energy from leaders, from politicians, who also felt that they had a mandate from their citizens to look again at nuclear energy in light of the gas prices that we were already experiencing then and also the lack of progress on reducing emissions. And then, of course, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February really compounded that and has led to even more of an acceleration in that change. And now we're seeing really extraordinary, I would say unprecedented levels of support for nuclear energy as as high as, you know, more than 80% of people in Poland, in Sweden, in Finland, who are in favour of nuclear energy to address all of those challenges, but also now the energy security and the geopolitical dimension has a strong driver as well.
0: Indeed, it is quite a turnaround. Rudy, your thoughts?
2: Well, first of all, I think I would agree with everything Kersey just said. In the case of Germany, some of these aspects are more pronounced, even so. I, in particular this traditional aspect. It goes back to the nineteen fifties post-war situation where there was a fundamental German discussion, remilitarization in general, and then nuclear as a particular aspect of that. And all of that led into the whole Cold War, Germany as a front state in the Cold War. Also with a substantial, well, influence from not so friendly forces trying to influence German opinion and policy. So that is why I think Germany, more than any other country, has a very very strong anti-nuclear movement, which not only that that it was strong as a movement, but also became a driving factor in policy overall, because other parties then sort of followed that lead by this anti-nuclear lead. And the highlight, of course, was then Angela Merkel, who really, for political reasons, said, I, I give up, you know, and uh, turned against nuclear. But then there's two other things that I would also mention and which are not in this political context. One of them is the nuclear industry has a very stable attitude and culture. And this has been changing lately, but it was created in a very um, techno democratic environment plus with the military connection a very very also um well everything's secret type of context in the beginning Uh, but uh, at least until the 1980s or so and even beyond that it is a very very hard technology engineering and i've actually heard people say in public events things such as You know, this is so complicated, I studied for 12 years with a PhD to learn this, so you just have to believe me. (laughs) And with this attitude, it's not necessarily good messaging for building trust in the public sector. And then combine that with performance issues that the nuclear industry has constantly had. I mean, they constantly were saying, so cheap to meter, it became expensive. They had bonds failing in the US, so the financial market also stopped believing them in the 70s, 80s. Projects got delayed. There were accidents worldwide after having said, well, it can't happen, and well, it can't happen here. So bringing those three things together has led to this great credibility issue. And one change that has happened in the recent years, I think, is that all of what we've just mentioned... There's an age factor there, too. So young people growing up now haven't experienced that um, 70s, 80s influence. And secondly, um, they're also more open minded in something. So younger people in Germany in the 80s would have been anti-nuclear per definition. Younger people today are probably open minded to even interested. And which leads us to things like SMRs or fusion. If you tell them this is different, you know, it's, it's not the same nuclear like before. Then they're really open for it. So that I think is in just adding to what Kirsty said. All of which is, I mean, the energy security aspects and climate aspects are, of course, very important drivers in this. And Kirsty already mentioned that, but I would just add those those aspects.
1: Those are great points. Rudy, is it okay if I just jump in? I just want to really double click on what you were saying for a second, because I think your comment about how the nuclear industry has not communicated well and you know, has not delivered. And you know, by not communicated well, I mean, that kind of arrogance that, you know, historically, we have seen in these sort of highly technical scientific communities, not being very effective at communicating to broader audiences, you know, the deficit model, which if only they could understand, then they would like it, you know, this kind of thing is really true. And I think I'm seeing that changing now, thank goodness. But I also think that this point that you're making about the need is really critical so in the sort of social science around risk communication we know that firstly humans are terrible at making assessments of risk (laughs) So, we we do all kinds of risky things all the time we're more afraid of getting on an airplane than in a car and we smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and do all sorts of things that are really bad for us and we take those risks um firstly we're terrible at assessing the kind of real you know what's more risky than something else And secondly, we do make choices about taking risks when we think that there are benefits. And I think one of the kind of key things that has changed even in the last 12 months, even in the last six months around the discourse on nuclear energy in Europe is that there was a broader belief that we didn't really need it, right? And actually, you know, what was sort of hidden in the energy transition discourses in Europe and in Germany, but in lots of countries with the transition to renewables was a baked-in dependence on gas, and now that that you know dependence on gas has been exposed as actually being very risky, then it has prompted a kind of reconsidering, a review of the position, and it's kind of forcing, it's creating a force field to say, well, actually, we need something else, and we need nuclear. And when you start looking at your previous position on nuclear energy as being too risky. Don't like it. It was because really you didn't see any benefits that would make it worthwhile. So,
0: Kirsty, you bring up a, a very good point there. The fact is, there is a push factor: the energy crisis, the over reliance on gas has certainly caused a change in perspective. I think quite drastic and very quick, certainly, to where Europe is looking at alternatives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what is maybe what needs to be tweaked in the system, how energy markets operate, all these kinds of things. But what's interesting for me is that some have come to the fore saying, well, if we take Germany, for example, and Rudy, you focused on Germany, which I'm very pleased you did, because Germany had quite an aggressive energy vendor, which really abandoned sort of fossil assets, which was a good thing, but also nuclear very quickly. And some are saying that because of that, sort of forceful shift away, or should I say, towards renewables, Germany actually put themselves in quite a vulnerable position. Kirsty, your view?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, this is the thing. This is the whole point, which is that it was perceived to be a low-risk strategy to say we're gonna do this unprecedented transition to renewables, which has not been achieved yet in any modern industrialized economy. With the assumption that we were going to have a lot of cheap gas available in abundance to back up the whole system and keep the whole show in the road, now that was not usually explicitly said. <laughs> and actually, what we're seeing now is that that is a very high risk strategy. And the reason that Germany is moving towards a very tough decision haven't they haven't made it yet? It, it might be possible to keep those plants running. It might be necessary to restart those plants that we shut down last year. You know, is because they are exposing their economy to an astonishing level of risk the government's have one job really which is to keep the lights on and this isn't just about the harm that could be caused to households but it's about undermining their industrial economy if they start to really see severe shortages in power combined with very high prices energy is profoundly important for keeping our economies moving and Governments really have to ensure that a reliable, affordable, always on supply. So, yeah, very exposed. And this is one of the sort of features of nuclear energy, of course, which is that it's very reliable. And these, you know, the plants in Europe are getting old. We've been taking them for granted for decades. And one of the features of the nuclear industry actually is that once built, these plants operate for decades. They operate for, you know, 40, 50 years. The new ones might operate for 60, 80, even 100 years. And it's very easy for the industry just to become like apartment building owners, (laughs) where they just sit there as landlords with these cash machines, basically generating electricity and money. Thank you. And that's it. And it's not a very future oriented industry as a result, and not a very dynamic industry as a result in the way that wind and solar industry is constantly building new projects and is very future oriented. So it's, you know, I'm not just sort of criticizing political leaders here. I'm also recognizing that the industry itself is not done a good job at really sort of articulating the very important role that it plays and ensuring that it doesn't get
0: taken for granted. Thank you for that, Kirsty. Rudy, would you perhaps like to comment on nuclear as a risk mitigation plan, considering the energy crisis and the need for secure supply?
2: Well, again, I agree with everything Kirsty just pointed out. There's very important messages in there. And because there's so many of them, you might even miss them. So it's worth listening to what she just said twice. And the issue of energy security is a good touch point to that. Um, Energy security, at least in Germany, was off the political agenda for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. The political agenda in Germany was decarbonization and anti-nuclearization. And humans in general, but even very intelligent, very powerful, very successful people have this tendency to fool themselves. And you live in visions of a future energy system, which are credible, except the path to get there is perhaps not realistic. And this is where nuclear, of course, also has a problem, because even if you were to say today, let's, let's get into nuclear, uh, it's going to take you more than 10 years till you have those plants in operation. If you start the journey today and so this is where and this comes back to what i said before the industry itself has not performed well i was involved in nuclear new build in the uk and i started in 2007 and i was there until 2013 and the uk and this was it goes back to tony blair said you know lights shan't go out and there was a pronounced government policy for energy security and nuclear the role to close the gap. And they wanted to have X, I forgot how many, but I think 16 gigawatt in operation by 2017, 18. And so even a country like the UK that had the industry, that had the capability, that had the sites, that had the desire, and that had an actual strategy and actually people doing something about it, even they failed miserably, both in terms of cost as well as in execution. I mean, at that time, we thought 10 billion for a two-unit plant would be expensive because they were supposed to be cheaper than the old ones, and the old ones had been cheaper than that. And now they're talking about 20 billion plus. So, you know, if you're talking about energy security, and then you have an industry that takes, well, 20 years, 20 years to deliver and it double or triple the price, well, how does that help your energy security? So it makes it a very weak argument for those people who are dreaming about something else. And this is where I come back to fooling yourself So if you're fooling yourself by saying that we have wonderful options and alternatives, then nuclear is not attractive. If you all of a sudden realize that the emperor's got no clothes and that we can build renewables as much as we want, but even then we won't have enough to cover our not just current electricity demand, but also our heat and mobility requirements, plus the increased electricity, we won't be able to build enough renewables in Europe, let alone in Germany. To do that alone we don't have the infrastructure yet to transport all this whatever it will be nor do we have the storage capabilities nor do we have the networks and grids that would be so flexible to do without storage so then you wake up and say oh actually we depend on gas and if we depend on gas we depend on russia and if we depend on russia that's we run some risks it just so happens that this risk showed up now and that's why people woke up and then you say, well, maybe nuclear is not a good option, but the only one we have.
0: <laughs> Rudy, you paint such a realistic picture there for us. Kosty, did you want to weigh in? Could I?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, I, yeah, I really agree with this perspective as well. We're sort of violently agreeing here. And I want to sort of build on what you're saying here, Rudy. It's funny because I was working in Tony Blair's press office at that time when he made those announcements. So that must be where I got this idea <laughs> from. So, okay. Can we deliver? That's the really big question right now. Can we deliver fast enough and at the scale required to actually you know respond in a meaningful way to this crisis? And based on recent experience, the answer is clearly no. Yeah, that's you know we can't we cannot keep doing what we've been doing for the past decade. And so I, I have sort of three proposals here. One is that we need really clear strategic, political, Acknowledgement, recognition, and commitment to understanding the role that big nuclear plants can actually really play. And they can operate flexibly and contribute towards higher penetrations of renewables into the electricity system as well. So it's not an either or thing. Um, and we've seen that that kind of political commitment has led to astonishing results in Sweden and France during the last. Big energy crisis, the oil shock in the in the seventies. You know, France built fifty eight reactors in fifteen years, and Sweden also had the sort of fastest per capita addition of nuclear. They did that while growing their economy, and lowering their energy prices, and of course reducing their emissions. Although that wasn't the key driver at the time, so it's possible to have a very very effective program, even with traditional construction of nuclear plants. However. To really get fast and really achieve the scale and the costs that we need and the rates of deployment that we need, we really need to move from a project based construction approach much more into a high productivity manufacturing product based approach. Now we already deliver all kinds of big, complicated, highly regulated machines from which we expect a really high level of performance, you know, ships and airplanes. Why not really apply? Why not transfer that capability into this sector and start delivering? You know, very standardized nuclear technology products and the new SMRs and advanced reactors are, of course, that's what they're designed for. They're designed to be manufactured in factories. So we can accelerate these programs. We can accelerate the licensing. It's really, I remember somebody asking me, is it possible for Germany to keep their nuclear plants on? Like, say, two or three months ago, they said, would it be possible? And I said, yeah, it's not a technical barrier. It's really a political decision. And it's really, very similar with the deployment of these technologies. We can radically accelerate it if we really decided to. And then this, the third thing I would say on this is that we often get stuck just talking about the electricity system. And of course, yes, that's important, but we have to also decarbonize our whole economies within the next two decades. We have 28 years to 2050. So one of the big dangers with the terrible recent events is that we get really derailed from our you know, larger existential threats and it's similar in a way it's like we need the same kind of long view from our political leaders to understand what's coming down the track and prepare for it get our resilience for these shocks that are coming we're already experiencing a horrific heat wave in Europe today climate change is already happening but we're going to look back on this summer as being one of the coolest summers in the decade ahead so we need to keep our eyes on the prize and you know start investing now in building up the energy infrastructure that we need to address these larger crises that are coming.
0: Thank you, Kirsty. The way you phrase that, you know, keep your eye on the prize, it is very important. And I think Europe is trying to balance the need for energy security and obviously still continuing to move forward on the EU Green Deal objectives and decarbonisation mission. And it is a fine balance. I think that this whole energy crisis and the over-reliance on gas has been a stark wake-up call. And really, you spoke about that, the need for a wake-up call and the need to get real. Do you believe that we're going to see maybe increased investments and focusing on some of these technologies? You know, Kirsty mentioned SMRs. Are people getting real about how nuclear can actually play a role in Europe's decarbonized future?
2: Well, I think there's a trend towards getting it. I mean, in the sense that the topic, at least, is becoming a topic. But I think there's still a general hope that we can somehow get by. And, for example, some people's mind might be, you know, in six months we'll have peace with Russia and then uh, gas starts slowing again and then we can forget about it all. You know, it might be on some people's mind. On the other hand, what hasn't hit most consumers yet, at least in Germany not, is the full effect of the cost increases that we're currently seeing hasn't hit home yet. So this this urgency uh, might not quite be there yet, but it's on the track. The three points that Kirsty mentioned, first of all, not just electricity, that is a big big thing that people ignored in the past. I mean, they kind of had it on their radar, but then just didn't deal with it. I mean, policymakers. Secondly, the acknowledgement commitment is what we were just saying. And, you know, this is where what we were just saying that it's getting there, but I don't think we're in the situation yet where we have a dramatic national mission feeling that everybody's pulling on this. So, you know, can we do this? I don't believe so. Could we do it? Yes. You know, if you take sports... I would say we need to get Jurgen Klopp uh, <laughs> you know, to get where Liverpool was, where they are now. Can you make that change happen? Yes, you can. Uh, but it takes this acknowledgement and commitment, which uh, stopped the diversion of saying we can. there's other ways to do it and uh, just let's build more renewables faster, which we need to do. But that's not going to solve our problem. Uh, no matter how many, how much renewables and how fast we build them, it won't solve the overall problem. And this leads me to the other point that I think we need to think about is I'm definitely a free market person, but what we're talking about here, if we take the year 2050, that's 28 years from now, 28 years back, my daughter was already born and that's yesterday. (laughs) My daughter was born yesterday and that's more than 28 years ago. So in other words, this is a, and in terms of large infrastructure projects, I think they're building that nearly that long, exaggerating now, but not far away. Or Eurotunnel took forever and other projects that we have. So it's a really, really, 2050 is not far away and our breakpoint is much earlier. So we have very little time to get these things done. And this, I mean, we need to take apart an entire energy system, generation upstream and downstream, and replace it with something else and this something else doesn't even exist yet in terms of investable commercial products so this immense task that we have in a short period of time takes a super strong project management and the financial means are there i mean the investment was possible but the guarantees we need the political risks that are involved i think we need a strong role of government as an investor as a vehicle to be doing these things, and they can, turn, they can reprivatize it afterwards. But I don't think we can adjust the decommissioning of the current system is a multi-trillion dollar, 10-year project. Add to that a new investment of technologies that we don't have. So I think you know we need to speak about how do we have a free market approach, but we can't just wait for the market to solve the problem and define parameters and the market will somehow fall in place. We need this what Kirsty was referring to, the French or Swedish approach to say we're going to build 50 of these things with a cookie cutter, whether it's SMRs or traditional nuclear plants or a combination of that or fusion plants. We have some commercial fusion plants that are not far away, but we'll need some pretty major program management there.
1: I would also say that we it's really important that we start reconsidering this expectation that we'll be able to fully electrify everything by 2050 and build enough electricity generating infrastructure that doesn't have any emissions to accomplish that and also change all of our existing storage, transport, distribution and end use infrastructure to accommodate that and afford to be able to do that and sequence the investment to build confidence in the supply chains, in the end users, in industry, in consumers You know, even with electric vehicles, we haven't yet seen the full scale of transition that, you know, you might think, considering how electric vehicles are lovely, right? They're wonderful. But all of the sort of associated infrastructure, whether it's transmission or charging infrastructure, and then the fact that everybody has to buy a new car, this is a massive undertaking. And we have to do it within incredibly challenging timescales. And we have to do it completely completely. So one of the strategies that we're looking at to sort of overcome this and also address some of these issues that Rudy is rightly raising about, you know, how quickly we can build anything, frankly, is to leverage the capital and the investment and the infrastructure that we already have and repurpose it for emissions free applications. And there's two major opportunities that we see. One is to repower coal plants. With advanced heat sources and we're designing a system that enables you to co-locate essentially a new advanced heat source with the existing coal plant but reuse the majority of the existing coal plant essentially you're just replacing the coal boiler with an SMR. Re- you're replacing it with an smr but only the heat generating part so the strategy that we're using is that you put the heat into the thermal energy storage tanks which then is deployed to run the existing steam generator and everything at the coal okay, plants yeah. And you can do that if you separate the heat island from the power island, you don't have any safety implications for the existing coal plant and you cut the cost of delivering a new SMR from, you know, 2 billion to 1 billion or, and then of course you're continuing to use the existing transmission and you're continuing to have essentially a sort of flexible high capacity factor generating plant with an existing workforce and community around it. So it's a very attractive prospect and the possibility of being very fast, very low cost and very repeatable, which means that we could really be deploying very, very quickly to these sites. And we're seeing a lot of demand amongst coal plant owners and coal communities for this option in the US. Numerous states have overturned moratoria on nuclear energy. The historic moratoria on building any new nuclear because they're interested in repowering their coal plants um, with these new SMRs. If you perceive a real benefit, you know, if you ask people in the abstract, oh, would you like to have nuclear? They just say, well, you know, I don't need it, so no thanks. But if you ask these coal states, you know, uh, there's a choice between these coal plants shutting down, devastating for your economy and for your communities, or you could keep this running. Sustain the jobs, sustain the economic benefits by repowering, then actually there's a real benefit there. And the other really important opportunity is through the production of synthetic fuels, which basically are comparable in cost and performance to liquid fuels and that could be deployed particularly into hard to decarbonize and hard to electrify sectors like shipping and aviation. And we could be producing these hydrogen based fuels. So, not hydrogen as an end use fuel, but hydrogen as an ingredient. In synthetic fuels. So the, the interesting thing about the production of synthetic fuels as an application for nuclear energy is that it really transforms the business model from being the sort of traditional site-by-site power generation model where you know the electricity has to be consumed at the point of production. So you require power purchase agreements, you're constrained by the size of the electricity market, you need to find a new site each time you want to build a plant. If you're making a commodity, like a synthetic fuel that can be stored and transported and exported to global markets, then you are much less constrained in terms of where you locate your project and you can have a much larger refinery-scale project. And so the hydrogen gigafactory model, for example, which would enable you to invest a lot in your manufacturing facility on-site and then have a 20 gigawatt facility for example producing hydrogen-based fuels and that could lead to the sort of very low costs that we need to enable the transition but it could also lead to the kind of scale of production that could be a really meaningful contribution towards addressing the crisis because the reason why traditional nuclear plants are expensive and slow is because we're building one-of-a-kind projects each time by hand essentially you know 5,000 guys in a muddy field is like how we currently do it. So we really, yeah, that delivery model has some serious limitations, but in order to move into the manufacturing-based model, you need to essentially move your capital investment from the construction into the factory, build a factory. And you can only do that if you have a big pipeline of orders for the thing that you're making. And the traditional electricity generation model really doesn't deliver that, and it's a big barrier for the SMR developers. So moving into commodities-based production and then that, you know, this is all about decarbonizing across the whole economy, of course, as well, looking beyond electricity.
0: Thank you for explaining that to us, Kirsty. And for our listeners who would like to know more about the repowering of coal that Kirsty was referring to, I will include a link below for more information. Unfortunately, we are running out of time rapidly. So I'm going to ask, Rudy, do you have any concluding comments or anything you'd like to share before we finish up?
2: Well, perhaps as a concluding comment, which is a continuation of what Percy was saying. I think this is what connects us with the energy industry at large. I mean, we're not talking about nuclear as an end in itself, and it's certainly not the only part in the overall picture. But much more important is we need to rethink our energy system as a total. So, And in that new, I mean, the, the physical energy system, we need to rethink it in overall and the same way as with e-mobility, while well, you need to combine that with autonomous driving cars, and then you have a completely different scenario than you would if you had everybody switching nowadays from fossil to electric vehicles. So the same thing applies, I think, for nuclear as well. Nuclear has a role, and whether it's SMRs or traditional or anything else, nuclear has a important role in a new energy systems, infrastructure, which needs to be different than the old one. And it might even still have some large traditional type of plants. But I think the key is what Kirsty was describing before, we need to rethink things. And this is what connects us with the energy community, such as the one that we find at Enlit in general. We all need to be thinking about these things together, and the rest of the NLIT community should also be thinking about how could we perhaps include nuclear resources into our models of how we think we might shape the future.
0: Thank you for that, Rudy. And again, I will include a link to Inlet below if you'd like to join the conversation. Kirsty, your concluding thoughts?
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think the, I'm really interested in the Inlet community and you know, how we can mobilize to really sort of deliver here because I think this is the big risk. There's a window of opportunity now. The character in Chinese that means crisis also means opportunity to actually really make a change to our energy systems wholesale and to do that we will have to think really differently from the way that we've thought before and that means creating the right incentives for industry to make those changes. It means bringing the public with us on you know the communications um, challenges and it also means you know really learning from successes in other industries you know i've been talking about transferring industrial capability from world class shipyards for example from other successful manufacturing capabilities into our sector and then ultimately having the sort of political leadership that's coordinated enough that we're not duplicative but we're additive and we've seen with the during the covid crisis we've seen the scientific global community come together and collapse a timeline from what usually would be 10 years to develop a vaccine to 10 months. So, you know, humans can do this when we feel as though it's an emergency and COVID was called an emergency and we acted like it was an emergency. We're in an emergency now on climate and we need to start acting like it.
0: Well said. And I think perhaps, you know, that is a silver lining with this whole energy crisis, that perhaps it is changing perspectives and spurring change more quickly and, you know, hopefully nuclear can find its place in the future energy mix. And I just appreciate both you, Kirsty, and you, Rudy, coming together with me to have a conversation about this because that's ultimately where it all starts. But thank you both for joining me and I really appreciate your insights and I'm sure we'll keep in touch with you closer to Inlet and get your insights on market developments once again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.